I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. Welcome to the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm Jack Miller. And I'm very excited to say that this is episode number seven. This is now halfway through, or more than halfway through, the first season. I'm going to be running 11 episodes in this first season, the last one premiering on December 9th. And then I'll take a little break and come back for season two starting in January. I have an interview again for this week with Amanda Manjarez. I'll talk a little bit about her in a minute, but I also want to point out that in the next few weeks, I have a string of interviews coming up with very interesting people. Uh, The communications manager for the Northeast Coalition of Neighborhoods, the executive director for Mercy Corps' micro-mentoring program, and a political communications strategist and expert with over 40 years of experience in Oregon and national politics. So that's all coming up. My final episode of the season, episode 11, is going to be a kind of a trying to pull it all together. Any of my students who have ever taken classes from me know that on the last day of class, I always try to wrap everything up in a nice big bow and give some kind of takeaway That'll be my impulse for episode 11, but we have a few interviews to get through before I get to that wrapping up stage. Today, Amanda Menjarez is the Director of Advocacy for the Latino Network, Uh, but she came to my attention in a different role. She was the Vice Chair of the City Club of Portland's committee that was tasked with rethinking the city's commission system of government. And they did a bunch of research and came up with a report. You can read the report. It's linked in the show notes. I first met Amanda at a City Club event that released this report and had a number of different people come and speak on its behalf. So Amanda is a person who's involved in a number of different endeavors. What she spends most of her time doing, what her day job is, is she's the director of advocacy for an organization, and she spends a lot of time down in Salem lobbying on behalf of her organization and the Latinx community in Oregon. So she has a lot of experience interacting with and attempting to influence the policymaking process. And much of what we speak about is her experience with and her sense of the opportunities as well as the shortcomings and obstacles that are a number of different things. But you came to my attention. So without any more commentary on my part, the city club's team that wrote a report about reforming the Portland city government form. So why don't you just start off by talking about how that got started and what you did and, and where it stands now? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the City Club of Portland basically puts out a call to their members to say, you know, we do these research committees to look at problems affecting the city of Portland. It's, you know, a longstanding institution. And at the time, I was working uh, at the Coalition of Communities of Color as the advocacy director, but also have a background in election law. I'm actually an attorney as well. And so that's sort of my nerd space. And so I was encouraged to apply for that. When I did apply for that, they asked me if I would be the vice chair of the research committee. And so we did a lot of work to make sure that the committee itself was diverse in in terms of, you know, geographic representation, racial representation, gender, etc. And for me, it it was an issue I I care deeply about. Um, The question or the call was really how to make Portland city government more equitable and you know, when I moved to Oregon about five years ago now, I was shocked by the form of government we had. It, this at-large system, you know, has been struck down across the country. So it, my mind immediately went to, this is a civil rights violation and what's going on. Right, we are the only major city that has this form of government. Yeah, yeah. and it hasn't been challenged legally. And I, I feel like it's due, but we also have an opportunity to change it. And so this was a unique opportunity really to sit down and say, let's do a little bit of research and figure out what the right structure would be, as opposed to just trying to strike down the, the current structure, which we I think common sense would say is this feels inequitable. You're going to end up with basically no voice from communities of color and other folks, you know, who are part of this city. Can you just give me a quick bullet point? What are the main points that the report found and recommends? Yeah, so I think the main points were um, our system is deeply inequitable. Uh, We don't really have representation. We have city commissioners who are tasked with both governing and legislating. Um, You've basically taken what we understand as different forms of government or uh, shared powers, you know, amongst uh, the legislative bodies and, you know, governing bodies and and others and pulled it all into one person. At the commissioner Um, form, you get elected to be on the city council, but then you're a commissioner who's the head of an executive agency or a number of executive agencies. And so there's two jobs there. Yeah, there's two jobs, which is a lot to ask of anybody. So it discourages folks from wanting to take on that job. It also attracts folks who may not have experience in that job, which is really interesting. And there's no time to actually engage with uh, the public to understand, like, what are the issues that Portlanders care about? Portlanders are confused about who they're supposed to reach out to. Like, it's not working for anybody. Right. And the at-large system also is that was a big part of it. So there's the yes. commissioner system, which is which puts city council members in charge of executive mm-hmm. agencies. And then there's the at-large voting system. Yes. And so with that, I mean, again, getting into this idea of representation, I think we, we've seen legally and under, you know, our U.S. Constitution, like at-large system and our Voting Rights Act, at-large system struck down because they don't give minority folks an opportunity to have a voice and elect somebody of their choice. So the report is out and you mm-hmm. can read it on the City Club website. This is a podcast about political outrage, and I will get to my question about your outrage in a minute. But as you were doing this report, did you find any or much outrage among Portlanders that our city government is not responsive, is unfair, is ineffective, or is there not anger and outrage about our form out there? The way the City Club does its research, we weren't really out in the community necessarily. We we invited folks in, uh, different stakeholders, uh, folks who are you know, embedded in the political process, whether they be commissioners and others, community members who had been part of this before. Um, But the City Club right now is actually doing community forums and had a Uh, its own Friday forum on this as well, to start to have those community conversations. But I will say, as we brought folks in to talk to them about our current form of government, 
nobody was defending it. Not a single person came in and said, this is great and it's working fine. I think everybody acknowledged that it could be improved. And that was surprising, actually. We, we were looking for folks who might actually have a different perspective. I think some of the folks who were maybe softer in their support for change were the folks who are benefiting from the current system. They've figured it out. They only have to go to one commissioner, you know, and um, work to, to get some of their issues moving. And so, or they've built a relationship with one commissioner. And so I think that there was outrage. I, I think generally there is outrage. Folks are shocked when they hear about the current system, but. Right, when people, it's, it's yeah. interesting because it, it doesn't seem to, I don't hear an awful lot of outrage about the system itself, the structure of the system. People, of course, find the government ineffective or they don't like a particular counselor mm-hmm. or the particular mayor or certain policies or they're outraged that there are potholes or there are homeless people. It's kind of an inside baseball sort of question of like, yes. does the structure of the government outrage you? Like, well, no, even though that's one of the dominant reasons why so many problems we have aren't being addressed. That's right. No, and folks are confused, right? It's such a weird form of government in the, the worst way. Do you have a sense of how likely it is that there's going to be a change in the short to medium term? Yes, we're actually due for a charter review commission, which is in our charter. Um, so the mayor is supposed to convene folks who are appointed by city commissioners. I, I think that's a process to look at our city charter and make recommendations. And I think this could potentially be part of that conversation or could be, you know, because it would take a charter change in order for this to change, which right. is essentially like, I mean, a charter for a city is like a constitution for a state or for the country. And so um, it has to go through that process. That's one option. Another option would be to take it to the ballot, right, and go through that process as well. And I know there are definitely motivated citizens and the City Club is, you know, again, getting the word out and and trying to to build awareness around this report. Right. One of the things about the charter review is that it puts in the hands of people who are already winning under the current system the task of changing the system. And so they're less motivated to do so. But we do have the secondary outlet of the ballot measure that allows citizens to say, well, we we don't like the system and we're not winners under it, so we can change it. Yes. I have a feeling that I'm going to have other guests in the future who are going to be talking about the same thing. And this is an issue that is part of Portland politics in the near future. So we'll be discussing it. I appreciate your perspective on it. So now I'm going to turn to you as a person. What is something that used to outrage you and no longer does? And importantly, why the change? Yeah, I think that's a great question because I I think it's something I ask myself often. You know, I think one thing that used to outrage me that that doesn't really anymore, and I have some, I, I find some value in is the sausage making. And I know folks hate sausage making when it comes to policy. You know, when I was younger and just getting into this work, I think that, you know, I worked through, you know, I was a lobbyist at the legislature and, and moving a lot of issues and always felt like when we came with our, you know, quote unquote, perfect bill, it was so frustrating when we were asked to meet with the other side or with stakeholders who, you know, oftentimes in, in the work I was doing were, you know, part of the business community or an insurance company and felt like we had to negotiate way, away really important ideas in our policy or provisions. And I think what I've learned over time is one, I don't have the perfect policy idea often coming in. I think we think, you know, we're experts and we know everything and what I put together makes the most sense. And I made a steak and the sausage factory ruined it. Yeah, it's a little (laughs) self-righteous. Yeah. And so what I've learned over time is how you can actually one, it's not zero sum, and you can really strengthen a policy by bringing in different perspectives, especially now in the work I do in my, my day job with the Latino Network. 
I spent a lot of time working with impacted community members to figure out what is the right policy and how do we take community experience and turn it into the right reform and strengthen it through the process. Even if I don't fully agree with them, because I think honestly, if you go in and you're true to your values, you're clear and transparent about your bottom lines, and everybody is you know, working on the policy in good faith, you can end up with something really great that doesn't necessarily have a natural opponent. You know, I do a lot of advocacy now in education and early childhood, criminal justice reform, and we find unlikely allies in those spaces who I find can be great partners in the work. And so I think part of that, you know, has been a, a growing up on, on my part, but also, you know, has just come with experience over time. Right. So you see the sausage factory differently now as yes. taking not necessarily a stake and turning it into something that's inferior, but bringing these other parts together in what could be a better policy. Absolutely. And that's come through your experience in working in policymaking. Yes. You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast, created by White Tiger Productions. At White Tiger Productions, we create experiences. If you have an idea for a podcast, a workshop, or a show of any kind, we'll help you go from concept to execution. We provide creative direction and production support. We've got a podcast studio, writers and storytellers, sound engineers and editors, designers, videographers, hosts, creative coaches, everything you need to manifest your creative potential. You name it or even vaguely describe it, and we'll take you from dream to finished product. White Tiger Productions. You can do what you think, and we can help you. Visit us at youcandowhatyouthink.com and tell us what you're thinking about. You've gotten past your outrage about the sausage factory, and I, I really love how you explain why you changed your view there. What outrages you now? Oh, man, I have a conversation constantly. You know, I do a lot of uh, advocacy here at the state level. And it's it's interesting because we do have a very progressive uh, legislature right now. We have a supermajority in Democrats and, you know, and we have a lot of folks in Salem who are sympathetic to our issues. And I get really frustrated in that the system and the committee structures and the way our legislature is set up is very inaccessible to communities who are just trying to learn about the legislative process. So basically, our legislature is not your schoolhouse rock, right? It's not goes through this committee, goes through that committee, you know, goes to full chamber. Okay, it passes, it jumps to the other side. It really is make it up as you go. And it becomes very problematic because you have to be an insider to navigate this process. And so I have the the honor and privilege of being able to be paid to do that work, but a lot of people aren't. And right. they just want to have access to their representative and they want to see good things happen. And so if you're making up the process as you go, it doesn't really work for everyday people. Really. And you, so you find it outrageous that there's not process that makes sense, that's easy to learn. That's accountable, right? It's You can't make up a process right before the session starts every year. Like, Is there a path forward to making our state legislature more systematic, more schoolhouse rock-like to say well, how you put it? I think, honestly, it's by increasing representation of folks who understand that experience, right? And so I, you know, I've been in the Oregon legislature and had situations where people who are need translation in different languages are being rushed through the process to speak. And it's just, there's a cultural competency that I feel like is missing a little bit. And part of that has to do with the diversity of our legislature and, you know, coming from a place where I'm representing a culturally specific organization, Latinx serving um, institution, 
it's difficult because I'm asking people from immigrant communities and other places to come and speak on issues that they care about. It just doesn't feel like a welcoming place. Because you've not had a lot of diversity in the building, these issues don't come up as often. And and now as that capacity is growing, it's becoming more clear that it needs to be addressed. Right. So if you haven't undergone yourself the struggles of the people who you're legislating about, Mm -hmm. then you're not necessarily going to create a process that opens it up to their voices. And you're, even though you're good-hearted and you're a progressive Democrat in the legislature, you're not necessarily going to find a good way to serve those communities. That's right. And I think, you know, again, coming from a place where a lot of the issues I'm working on are, are centered on racial equity. And that's an issue that I would say the progressive community is still grappling with. So if you have a bunch of white progressives who might, in theory, again, be sympathetic to communities of color, but they don't themselves, the people don't know what those struggles are they're not necessarily going to be able to make good policy uh, or even create a process that allows for those voices to come in. Yes. Yeah, so good intentions are not enough. Good intentions are not enough. I think that's right. a great a great lesson to take from that. So that outrages you. What do you think can be done about that? I, you've alluded to it already, but let's just tackle it right away. What would change that? If you had a magic wand, what would change that? I've had conversations with leadership and with other folks about it. I think ultimately it takes folks who are leaders in the legislative process to say, this is how the process is going to work and and do that in a way that feels accessible and open to the community, making sure that all legislators have access to some training around racial equity and, and thinking through that. I feel like that hasn't happened in an institutional way. So there are a lot of institutional reforms that I think could really transform that system and make it more welcoming for everyday people to be able to come in. It is, again, this is a democracy. We have a representative form of government. And I think that's a a great thing. And so let's actually subscribe to that and say, well, that means that we have to slow things down sometimes, or we have to um, set up structures that maybe work sometimes and don't feel like they work for us other times, but be consistent, transparent, accountable, and inclusive. I like the idea of actually like beefing up the training of elected officials. You know, running for office doesn't necessarily make you a good listener. That's right. (laughs) That's absolutely right. And so so that's an additional layer. Like, okay, a democracy is great because it gives people a voice, but it doesn't, a democratic electoral system doesn't provide us with all of the tools that we need to have a responsive form of government. That's right. You know, the thing is, that sounds like a very doable effort. Yeah. Absolutely. I I don't think it's out of the question. Again, going back to our original conversation around forms of government and folks who are running institutions and who are benefiting from it, who are part of it, it's hard to change things, you know, when you feel like it's working for you. And so you're when you're asking people who are part of that system to make the change, it, it's more of an uphill battle. Right. The pressure has to come from the outside because the people who are winning aren't necessarily incentivized to change the system that they're already winning under. Yes. Uh, and you're involved with an organization that is one part of that outside effort. We Before we finish up today, will you just talk a little bit about uh, the Latino Network? Yeah, absolutely. So the Latino Network is a culturally specific nonprofit organization based here in the metro region. And it was formed in the late 90s by a group of Latinx leaders who were really interested in addressing the needs of a growing Latinx community. We Folks weren't feeling very represented. They weren't feeling like community needs were being met or heard in the process. And so they developed this organization, which has evolved into a very large culturally specific service provider. So that means it's you know basically providing services to the Latinx community that are by and for the community we serve. So I was hired a few years ago to help build an advocacy department within that organization to get 
you know, back to those advocacy roots of why the organization was founded and not just, you know, providing services and programs, which are incredible and achieving incredible outcomes, but looking for ways to transform the system, right, to make it more equitable and more inclusive, but also to think about how our community can can build power through the process and how we can get at root causes. So we aren't seeing the same participants in our programs, um, you know, which range from early childhood services to K through 12 services. We provide family stability service and that those are things like rent assistance, housing assistance, um, energy assistance, all the way to working with adjudicated youth and their families who are disproportionately represented in the criminal justice system, right? And so um, a lot of my work in advocacy is to develop policies and strategies in partnership with impacted communities about to then take to the state level, to the local level, to start to see that change. And so during the last session, we had some great success. We were able to get a $20 million investment in culturally specific early childhood services, which had never happened before. And part of that is because our community didn't have a voice in the process and had these great programs that weren't even part of the state's early childhood system. And it goes to show, you know, building and empowering people to have voice can bring great solutions to some of our broader challenges. So you go down to Salem and lobby in addition to being here and figuring out what policies you ought to lobby for. That sounds very exciting. You know, what's something about politics that you found surprising that you think most people would also find surprising? What immediately came to my mind when you when you said that was just going back to when I was first starting in this work, right? And I've been doing this for, you know, about 14 years now and it feels like 30 years. <laughs> but I, I think that when I first started, you know, I didn't realize how policies were really, like how laws were made ultimately. And I don't think we do a good job of really teaching people that in primary schooling and in other places. I think that, you know, I, I realized that people make laws and people are humans. So we put folks on a pedestal because they're our representative or they're a congressperson. That's an everyday person who's making decisions that impact your life. Even when I went to law school, I feel like people who were being trained as lawyers also kind of put themselves in a box to say, here's the law and here's you know what we do. And I remember sitting in class one day and saying, well, just change the law and you change that whole analysis, right? And I think people aren't really, don't feel oftentimes they have the power to change the law. And I think that is something that surprised me when I was first starting on how not easy, but like how accessible that actually is when you think about it and how we can tie that back to our own experience. You don't have to be a lawyer to do that, right? You just are a person and we have a representative form of government. So I think that was that was one piece was really just how accessible that is. And now I, I forget because I've been doing it for so long, like we have to continue to dem- demystify the process. Right. So people think that the law is the law and it can't be changed, but it's it's all just a messy human endeavor and it's changeable and you can get in there and roll up your sleeves and, and succeed at yeah. making some change that you want. Absolutely. And, you know, and oftentimes when I'm, you know, training people to be advocates and, and do that kind of work, it's reminding them you are an expert in your own experience. And also the issue that you're lobbying about or talking about, I can guarantee you probably know way more about it than that policymaker. Right. So it's building that confidence to go in and be able to voice your concern, your ideas, your solutions and to really see it through you know, is a process that everybody can engage in. Right. I really like that you're an expert in your own experience. And actually, you are the only expert in your own experience. And the so-called policy experts who don't have your experience are really the opposite of experts. They're neophytes who need your training so they can see what you're 
experiences and you're the people who are the targets of their policies. Yes. I always love it when people are advocating for a changed perspective because it doesn't require you to then like, okay, I'm going to quit my job and and try to get a job uh, as a lobbyist. You can change your perspective on the political system and that will change some of your action as a result. This has been a great conversation. I think we could probably continue talking for hours. I've uh, We had a long conversation before we got on the microphones and it was fascinating, but just want to thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast with Jack Miller. Keep up the good work. Okay, well, that's another episode of the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Miller, and it has been my pleasure to bring you this interview as it is always my pleasure to bring you the entire episode. If you have any thoughts you want to share with me or any ideas for interviews or things that you would like me to explore in the future, you can reach out to me. You can get to me at jack.miller at pdx.edu. You can always go to the website potholeproblempodcast.com and find ways to reach me there. Or you can come by my office in the Urban Center. I'm sitting in my office right now on the lovely Portland State University campus on a beautiful November afternoon. It's sunny and crisp. Not at all the way people think of Portland, but this is the reality of it. Well, I'm going to just leave you now again, as I always do, with a song. This is a band that is currently stationed in Wenatchee, Washington. The Lover Bees doing Let's Start a Hive. Thank you for listening and enjoy this song. How you people doing out there tonight? Anybody out there want to start a hive tonight? Let's start a hive. All right. Anybody want to start? You want to start a hive, guys? Let's start this off. Woo! Wanna start a hive with you? Be a queen for me. I wanna start a hive with you. Be a queen for me. Taste of your honey Yellow boots in my dreams Oh, taste of your honey Yellow boots in my dreams Yellow boots in my dreams Start a hive with you. Please clean for me. I wanna start a hive with you. Be a queen for me. Oh, taste of your honey. Yellow boots in my dreams. You tickle my sting. in my dreams The yellow boots in my dreams Slowing it down, huh? Like slow like sweet golden honey Just a little sweeter Won't start a hive with you a queen for me I want to start a hive with you Be a queen for me You take on my sting eye Yellow boots in my dreams 
Walk close to your heart 